Welcome to the Limitless Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Roseland. This podcast will teach you to acquire superhuman mental abilities and hack your reality. In this episode, I'm joined by street fight psychology expert Richard Gannon, a veteran martial arts practitioner of karate, aikido, ninjutsu, mutai, and MMA. Richard has over 10 years of experience as a nightclub doorman. In this episode, me and the guests discuss lucid dreaming, and something people tell me all the time is that they don't remember their dreams. I've actually got a really clever life hack for remembering your dreams. But first, I want to give a shout out to a particular resident of a very wet island. This morning, I headed over to the UK version of iTunes, and I found this really nice review by Wilco Pilp. New Practical Wisdoms. I love this show. Five stars. There is nothing else like it. I swear my memory is better. My ability to solve problems every day has improved. Listening to Limitless Mindset is a great way to not waste your time. A podcast that not only tells you you can do better, but also shows you ways you can do it. Five stars. Thanks again, Wilco Pip. I appreciate that, and I appreciate all our other listeners from that, uh, that, that wet island. If you get some useful information out of this show, please leave a five-star rating and a review in iTunes. I don't say this just because it makes me feel awesome to get this kind of feedback, which it does, but because it increases the show's visibility in iTunes, which allows me to persuade really high-quality, world-class experts to come on this show. And again, if you leave us some feedback in iTunes and you're not from the United States, please shoot me an email letting me know. Because iTunes, in its ongoing quest to become Skynet, in its ongoing quest to become a, a global, evil internet network that subjugates the human race, actually hides from me the reviews that are from outside of the United States, because my version of iTunes is registered to the USA. So again, if you drop us a review and rating, we love you very much. 
But if you're outside of the United States, please shoot me an email or a tweet letting me know. So let's talk about life hacking our dreams. Dreams have been regarded by everyone from ancient spiritual leaders and philosophers to modern-day psychologists and neuroscientists as a window to our unconscious, an invaluable tool for introspection and determining the best course of action for the future. The periodic table of elements in chemistry was first seen in a dream. With the assistance of a dream, Frederick Banting isolated insulin and a dream of Einstein's about sledding down a hill initially inspired the theory of relativity. So history has proven that our dreams will often deliver to us solutions to problems. Your dreams may not provide the solution to world peace or global warming, but I bet they will help you fix some of the problems in your own life. Why else would we want to remember our dreams? Well, a lot of times our dreams can be the most fun experiences we have all day. Vividly, vividly recalling the fun of surfing a tidal wave or being a badass ninja on a mission can add some much needed levity or entertainment to an otherwise dull day. Like in the movie Inception, the dreamer can build whatever world they want within their dream. There's a theory among lucid dreamers that building your own reality in dreams, architecting, can be valuable practice for building the kind of world and life you want in your waking reality. And many lucid dreamers are highly successful people, so there may be some credence to this theory. The problem with dreams is that they're really difficult to remember. Within a few minutes of waking, they can be completely gone, especially if you have a busy morning ahead of you. The general themes of the dream may stay with us as we start our day, but the vivid details will be lost. So the solution is to record your dreams, and for a long time, psychologists have suggested that we maintain dream journals. However, dream journals are actually a very impractical tool for recording dreams. Often, in the few moments it takes to pull yourself out of bed and find your dream journal, you'll start to lose the dream. If you have a busy morning, you won't have time to journal your dreams. Oftentimes, the most insightful dreams wake you up in the middle of the night, when you're much more likely to fall back asleep than to wake up and write things down. And finally, turning on the lights in the middle of the night can seriously mess up your sleep cycle and circadian rhythm, especially if you're recording your dreams every night. So here's the life hack to this. You want to install an application on your smartphone for voice dictation. I personally like Evernote because it's free and it works really, really consistently and it takes all of about three seconds and two clicks to start recording a voice note on Evernote. So I will awake from some fascinating, fun, insightful dream and I will reach over to where I put my phone and then I will turn on and I will open 
and Evernote voice note. And very important, you want to turn the phone slightly away from your face while you're recording this because your phone is going to blind you with a lot of light, especially if this is about 30 seconds after you've woken up. So if you turn it away from your face somewhat, it won't mess up your circadian rhythm and wake you up. You know, you can take 30 seconds, 60 seconds, two minutes, however long it takes for you to record your dream. And then there's a little button that's nice and big and conspicuous for saving that voice note. And then you can just turn your phone off and go back to sleep. And then in the morning, you can review your dreams. The two supplements we mentioned that empower lucid dreaming, DMAE, and Hooperzine A are linked on the show notes, which you can find on LimitlessMindset.com. Since I use this life hack all the time, and I record my dreams as audio files, I will actually play a few of them at the end of this episode after the interview with Richard Gannon. Now, some people might say that sharing the raw contents of my subconscious with the internet is crossing a line in the podcasting sand that shouldn't be crossed. So if that's more personal than you'd like to get with me, feel free to tune out after the interview with Richard. I promise I won't be offended at all. Welcome to Limitless Mindset. Benvenuti a Pensiero Senza Limiti. Buchim abayim letodaa lelogvulot. Hi, welcome to Libyan. Thank you, Mopar. Dobro došli u neograničeno razmišljenje. Welcome to Grenzless Tenkande. Welcome to Unbegrenzte Gedachtegang. Bienvenue à l'état d'esprit limité. Hey Richard, how are you doing? This uh this this evening it's evening for you in Kuala Lumpur and a beautiful morning for me in Medellin, Colombia. Awesome. Yeah, I'm doing good, mate. I'm doing very good. Um there's something I should clarify that. If you say somebody's an MMA practitioner, sometimes that can mean an MMA fighter. All I'm saying is I've done like submission wrestling and boxing and mixed stuff up in the Oh, okay. Gotcha. Thanks for thanks for that clarification. I'm glad we were we were finally able to connect it. It it was a little bit challenging there because we both have these these fascinating lives where we're in in countries where the internet sucks really bad, yeah. really bad. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, we finally caught each other on a Skype call. So, I like to begin these interviews by learning something interesting about my guests and it doesn't necessarily have to be related to the uh content of this episode okay um well i suppose i could tell you a bit about how i got into what i'm doing now yeah totally um well originally uh i was a sort of a very shy sort of intellectual kind of a little bit of a wimpy kid and uh, in the area where I'm from in the northwest of England, which is Birkenhead by Liverpool, it can be a bit of a rough area. Now, because I was a private school educated little middle class posh boy, I was uh, often the target for being victimized and bullied by local thugs and whatnot. And that uh, drove me into getting involved in martial arts training. Eventually, that bullying uh, escalated to the point where one night um, somebody actually glassed me. And uh, at that point, um, I really took stock of the level of violence that I was facing and just how serious an issue this was. And from then, 
you know, a syn- synchronistic series of events just led me to the point of, of uh, choosing to be a self-protection instructor, which is what I'm doing now. And do you do you operate a dojo? How many how many days of the week are you in a dojo? Well, I'm personally in a gym training probably five or six days a week. But no, I don't I don't run my own dojo. Um, I will occasionally uh, do personal training for people if they ask me for it um, over here. But most of the training I do at the moment is either in seminars. I've just come back from a seminar in Australia teaching a group of doormen over there doing control and restraint techniques. Or I'll teach via DVDs or via the YouTube channel, the Street Fight Secrets YouTube channel. So you said that your your experience was that you reached kind of like a point where the the violence in your own life had had gotten had gotten really intense and you needed a solution now to deal with the violence in your life. Would you say the majority of the of your of your students and the people that you work with are they in the same position? Are they people that are more interested in learning martial arts disciplines or are they looking for a an immediate solution to deal with to deal with violence the the people that i've got as clients uh run the full spectrum i think the people who are most attracted to this material are most attracted to the instructors that they're attracted to is because they resonate with the core values of that instructor. So a lot of the people who are followers of mine have had similar experiences to me, share a similar perspective to the one I have, um, and have the same core values as me. But yeah, beyond that, there are guys who are just looking for quick solutions. Um, the vast majority of my regular customers are instructors themselves. So my, my, list of people that, that I deal with the most regularly, I would say 70 to 80% of them run their own clubs and they are instructors themselves. And then we've got people who are just, you know, um, either they're, they're, they're involved in something that's part of their profession, like they're a bodyguard or they do door work, you know, they're a nightclub, they're doing nightclub security or they're a soldier or something like that and they feel they need it. Or it could just be normal everyday folks who just are scared of being robbed or mugged or raped. I'm probably like a lot of people that you've worked with. I have uh, some martial arts experience in my past, but I just don't know if my martial arts experience, I don't know how applicable it is to the real world. I, I recall an incident after I had received my black belt in Taekwondo when I was younger. I started practicing karate. And in my first sparring match in karate, I was going up against one of the bigger, more aggressive guys in that karate dojo. And I was a taekwondo practitioner, so I was, I was pretty much kind of just dancing around this guy. And I had an opportunity to do a, a real classic taekwondo move, which is where you, you jump up in the air and you kick with both of your legs. And I ended up kicking this guy in the head pretty hard and while while he was standing and that was something that had never happened to this guy before because he was a karate practitioner and it's mostly about you know inside combat and as soon as that happened he tackled me and started pummeling me on the ground and it was kind of an interesting moment of of mutual shock for both of us mm. where we were seeing where our particular style of 
of martial arts was ineffective against the style of martial arts that we were coming up against. And so that was, that was kind of a moment of, of, of introspection and, and inflection with my own martial arts practice where I was like, you know, how, how useful is this, you know, the skills that I've devoted five years of learning, uh, in Taekwondo? How applicable is that really, uh, in the real world? And the, the conclusion is I, I don't think it, it would be real helpful in the real world was what I came to. Yeah. I think, um, any the the typical profile of a streetfightsecrets.com um, client is 30 years or over so they're slightly older guys they have got a grounding in traditional martial arts training there will have been a moment of disillusionment where either they realize that the stuff wasn't going to work for them or wasn't going to work in the way they've been taught or they catch an injury and then they slow, they want to come back to training because they're still they look around in the world and they see there's young, there's younger stronger fitter guys out there big dudes who could give them a problem so that's why they start looking for a solution and why they why they come to me as to whether the stuff will work in the real world or not um it you know it really comes down to the individual i think it's interesting that as part of a karate taekwondo match that when the guy was under pressure he tackled you mounted you and started pummeling you which is a, a classic mma move so it's it's very interesting to see how all roads lead to rome in a sense that once the human body is in motion and people actually get into combat we all end up fighting exactly the same way and that's that's what we see now with the the crucible of uh, of the mma material is we're seeing where normal human combat actually lies and the range of, of, of movements actually tend to be in quite a narrow ergonomic band um, so it's interesting to me that he tackled you took you to the floor and started to ground and bound you so, Richard, last week on the podcast, I interviewed a Navy SEAL who had about 20 years of, of experience. And something that he said really frequently was that when he's training, and he's actually a Navy SEAL, he, he trains special forces candidates and operatives and something he emphasized as part of his core philosophy is that it's really important to win in the mind before going into combat and i was wondering if that's a philosophy that you share i think it's interesting that as you go up the grades in the military and as as these guys have become more specialized and obviously the people who float to the top for special forces they're not nitwits you know these are these are bright guys they're exceptional human beings who get through and they tend to come to the same conclusions uh, time and time again whether it's the navy seals or any special forces unit anywhere in the world there is a turning of attention back towards the mind you know the body is trained there's a standard in the military they all have to hit that standard the special forces guy exceed that standard and then once they've exceeded that standard, they say well what's the solution what should we be focusing on having reached a certain physical level what do we do now and they do tend to talk in terms of uh, you know where the psychology is up to I personally believe it is hugely important to the extent that if you don't if you've got it right physically but you've got it wrong mentally you've got no chance in a fight if you're not so great physically but you're in the right mental place you still have a chance in a fight so that to me says a lot i'm not saying you shouldn't train your body as well of course you should but the mind is more important than training the body 
probably a lot of the people listening to this are the kind of people that would never go out and look for a fight. They're, they're probably the kind of people that when they're at their highest risk point of being in a fight would be something like they've gone out with some friends and they've had a night out on the town and they're walking back to their car or they're waiting on a street corner for a taxi cab. Maybe they've had a couple of drinks in them. Maybe they're tired. What For people that are in that state of mind, not necessarily an intoxicated state of mind, but they're just at the end of their, they're at the end of their day. I, I can understand how if someone's like a, if, if someone's like a professional soldier or if someone is a security professional, that they have a lot of things that they do to stay really alert. But for someone that's just a, a normal citizen, when they are in that time where they might be in a higher risk profile again, like for example, you know, especially uh, people like me and you that are that are in exotic countries and, you know, we might find ourselves at 2 or 3 a.m. one morning walking through uh, an empty street, going back to a hotel room or whatnot. What are some, how do you, how do you train situational awareness and train being in the right kind of mindset to respond even if you're even if you're an entire mindset or even if even if someone's in a slightly intoxicated mindset but they're not necessarily looking for a fight well the first thing i would say is uh something that my an ex-girlfriend of mine from a few years ago used to tell me she was a beauty therapist and uh, when she used to look after people's skin she would say prevention is better than cure, meaning stay out of the, I nearly swore then, stay out of the sun. You know, if you want to recover from sun injury to your skin, it's difficult. Stay out of the sun in the first place. If you or I don't want to get bitten by a tiger, then we should stay out of doing safaris in the middle of Africa. If you go out drinking and you go to nightclubs at two in the morning, you're putting yourself in the altered state of mind, the vulnerable state of mind, in which most normal human beings in the Western world face street violence, and you're going to the location where street violence occurs at the times when it occurs. So I hate to be a killjoy, and I love a drink, I love to go out, I love to party, and I do all that, but the brutal truth is... When you choose to go to those places, you're making a very serious choice and you need to, you, we need to take full responsibility for that. If you never want to be in a street fight, if you never want somebody to, to, you know, accidentally break one of your fingers or a leg or something in a drunken brawl, don't go to bars and don't drink. You know, so prevention is massively better than cure. If you, as one of my customers did, found himself out in Panama City because he was chasing a girl, and he chased her in, or he wasn't ch like literally chasing her. He was, he was following a girl. He was chatting a girl up. He ended up in a rough area in Panama City. He's clearly foreign to that area, and uh, he's drunk. And then he gets into a taxi and he gets mugged. And it's a very emotionally distressing, upsetting experience for him, as it would be for anybody. And he still lives with that now, and he still struggles with it now. So prevention is massively better than cure in terms of awareness. There is no special state of awareness that you need to go into or that you can go into when you're drunk. The state of awareness that you need for your self-protection when you're drunk should be the one that you're training every day. Awareness is a muscle. It's a psychological muscle. You should be training it 
all the time, all day, every day. There's no reason not to. There's no excuse not to. It makes painful experiences less painful and it makes pleasurable experiences more pleasurable. So everybody should be drilling their awareness all the time. Now, Richard, would you say based upon your experience as a doorman and as a bouncer, do the majority of fights and violent encounters, is it is it like 80 to 90% after midnight or is it spread out a little bit more uniformly throughout the evening? No, it's uh, it's at the back end of the evening and, and what it is, it's interesting that you say that you heard my stuff from, um, from Jordan, Jordan Harbinger from The Art of Charm. A lot of this actually comes down to the fact that guys out there lack the social skills to attract women. And I genuinely believe this. It's because they're not uh, sexually fulfilled. They're sexually frustrated. The testosterone levels are high because they've been looking at good-looking women all night, but they're not going home with one. And after 12, after one, they've drunk enough alcohol. They're in a room full of guys in exactly the same position as them. So if they're not going to have sex, then they're going to want to engage in some other primal activity, which will be punching another man in the face, um, which, you know, could serve as, in, you know, a replacement enjoyment, if you like, or, or, or like a, a, a displacement of the sexual energy if we want to be Freudian about it. But no, it's definitely post-midnight that we have the problems, and a lot of the problems are over women, either directly or indirectly. So a pretty good... A pretty good, a, a pretty common sense life hack, but probably uncommonly practiced, would be if you're gonna go out and party, call it a night by midnight. Because a lot of, I don't know about you, but I've had some awesome. In my experience, I usually have the most fun before midnight, anyways. And it sounds like that's when the risk of being out and getting into an altercation goes up significantly. I think that's I think that's an excellent point. Um, you know, many many a night actually has finished by midnight. You know, you you really you're really like clinging on if you're there until two in the morning, and the quality of the people hanging around is 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 worse and worse. So you raise a really really good point there. Another simple point that I would add to that as a good uh, life hack, as you say, would just be very very careful of the people you go out with. You've probably heard the psychology phrase that you are a reflection of the seven people in your life you spend the most time with. You're a reflection of the books you read, the films you watch. The people you choose to go out with set the tone of the night. You want to be out with people who are trying to have a good time, not out with people who are insecure, maybe looking to assert their ego on somebody else or, or who enjoy confrontation or violence. So that, that's, another, that's another issue. You want to keep that atmosphere fun and upbeat. And yeah, you probably should be looking to go home sometime before midnight. Now, Richard, on your website, I was watching the video of the guy, David, who was the mugging victim. And they did this interesting motion capture segment with those, with the balls that they put on his body. And then they had the various experts read the body language just based upon the, the motion capture technology. And they accurately predicted based upon the body language who was going to be the mugging victim. I thought that was a really cool video and we'll make sure to link that up in the, in the show notes for this episode. What I'm curious about is I, I think a lot of people probably unknowingly have 
that body language that maybe makes them open to being mugged. Like I have a, I have a good friend named Justin and he's, he's a really fun guy. He's a really great social guy, but he, he, and he, he's, he's like me and you, he's a digital vagabond. He, he travels around, um, frequently and he seems like he, he seems like he gets mugged like every couple of months or he has some negative experience every couple of months. And so I'm wondering if, there's a good way of kind of quantifying our body language if we don't have the time and the budget, money and the, the budget to go through the, that type of motion capture exercise. Or, you know, if we don't have the time or the budget to do like a social dynamics class, which I think, I think social dynamics classes are a really great thing, especially when they teach you about your own body language. But if people just aren't able to get to one of those, are there some ways you could suggest of people being able to measure whether they are communicating with their body language positive things or things that might be opening them up to an altercation? That was a long question, and I heard two questions. I heard two questions there. One, is there a way if you can know whether you're emanating a negative vibe via your body language? Yes, and I'll explain that. And two, is there something we can do about that without spending a load of money? Yeah, I mean, I, I would give people this information all day for free. And if any of your uh, clients want to contact me, I'm more than happy to have a Skype conversation explaining exactly how to do that for free. Because Every human being on the planet should know how to look like a harder target and to be able to project not being a, a, a soft, vulnerable prey to be attacked. Um, one of the experts on that video is, a, is a, a mate of mine, another instructor from the UK called uh, Lee Morrison of Urban Combatives. And uh, I was amazed at how quickly he could ascertain um, somebody's emotional state just through looking at their gait, just through looking at the stance as they were moving through through light colored bulbs. I mean, it's really remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was remarkable. But um, yeah, to answer the question, how to know? Um, uh, the, the, there's various exercises that you can do. What I would take with somebody who was totally fresh is I would take them into a shopping mall or a busy area and say, okay, my friend, my student, you and I are now muggers. We're the bad guys. Let's get into the shoes of the bad guys. We need 50 quid. We need $100 right now. And we want it to be easy and we want to get away quickly. Pick someone. Pick someone and make them stand there and pick the nearest person out in the crowd and force them to do it quickly. Then post hoc, say to them, why did you choose that person? Uh, they seem like a soft target. Okay, why? Why? You chose them for a reason. Your reticular activation system, I asked your brain a question, your brain pops back with an answer. Why them? And it will come down to the way they're dressed, the way they're moving, you know, their, you know, their age, gender, all these other different things. So that's one thing that gets people to start thinking about, what am I communicating about myself? What's the context? You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a white guy in a non-white country, and I live in a very non-white area. I'm surrounded by Chinese, Malays, and Indians everywhere. That has positive impact, and that has negative impact. And I have to be careful how I carry myself so that I can live a happy life and, you know, carry on in a healthy, normal way. So that's what, that's level one. The next thing to do is to actually start giving them feedback and just say, okay, let's have you just move through this space, through this group of people, and I'm going to tell you 
how I think you look. I'm going to tell you what I think I'm picking up about your personality by just looking at you very, very briefly. You've probably, I'm sure you've heard of the Malcolm Gladwell book, Blink, which is all about making snap judgments, snap assessments of scenarios, situations, and people. When we're making a snap judgment... Thin slicing, correct. And when you're thin slicing a human being, he talks about micro expressions and the science. And the, you know, where I'm giving you, I'm giving your, your listeners, your viewers, a ton of information about my habitual high psychological states, even my beliefs, even my values, by the way I'm moving, the volume of my voice. We're giving away a ton of information that we're totally unaware of because you couldn't possibly poke a face it all in. So it's about turning up the dial on that awareness, taking responsibility for it and saying, well, what kind of an environment do I live in? If somebody is going to mug me, what, where are they coming from? What, how do they view me? Is, is there a racial issue here? Is there a gender issue? Is there an age issue? Is there a size issue? Um, because if you're a big person living in a country with small people, that can be, that, that's a factor, obviously. Um, so that's, that's one way of people getting a, a more objective view. Just have your friend or group of friends do this for each other. It's a really fun and interesting game. Walk, we'll just watch them walk around, say, okay, go over to that old man over there and just ask him the time. And I'm just going to watch you chatting to that guy like I don't know you. Now, as you're doing it, do you look nervous? Do you look happy? Do you look polite? Do you look cheerful? Can you make that guy laugh? Do you make him feel pissed off? All of these things, like we, we don't know what we're doing, but if you consistently make people smile, I consider that to be good social feedback. If you consistently make people pissed off, I consider that bad social feedback. If you're getting beaten up every two months, your friend has a problem. There's, there's something going wrong there, and he possibly might need a little bit of therapy just to have a little chat to see what that belief system he's holding in place there that's causing that to keep being attracted back into his life because every two months is, is way too often and so answer the final question yeah, I, I, I don't think he's getting beat up every two months i think he's just like having like little I, little altercations or i know he got pickpocketed on a on a chicken bus and i think san salvador <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I might actually put him in touch with you. It, it happens to some people a lot. And you know, the, the standard view is, oh, he's probably small and, and weak looking. But I've had the experience time and again, mate, and it, it blows my mind where I'm out with doormen, other bouncers who I don't look like really. I'm, I'm not that tall. I'm not that big. But I'm out with guys who look like debt collectors. They look like gangsters. And they get people mouthing at them and being cocky with them and I'm I'm looking at the people being cocky with these guys who look like monsters they're actually really nice guys and I'm like really seriously out of anybody here you're going to pick this 6 foot 5 18 stone shaven headed lummox of a man and it's it, it it it's not as simple as just saying oh it's a size issue or it's whether you look a threat or I, I haven't pinpointed what it is yet. I don't know what it is that draws trouble in. Um, all I can say is that I don't seem to get that. And I've stood next to people who look tougher than me, and they're li literally... Okay, here's an example. Recently walked through a security uh, section of a club with four doormen. I get nothing, and the other three doormen, as they come through, one of the guys who's checking them for security is gobbing off at every single one of them. And I'm thinking, why would you do that? So it's literally right next to me. It's happening. So the advice I would give to people is, is learn to control your emotional state and learn to project your emotional state. It's very difficult or it makes it harder for people to be 
negative towards you if you're projecting positive energy because they can't help it even if they want to act like buffoons you're making them feel good and I, I just don't give people a choice I just try as much as I can to not um, to arbitrate the emotional impact I'm having on people I want them to feel good I want them to feel relaxed I don't want them to feel insecure and so I don't give them the chance to start having weird thoughts about me and wanting to attack me psychologically or physically. Um, but a lot of that comes to down to state management, how you move your body, your tone of voice, and how you feel. If you're in a bad, moody, grumpy, grouchy state all the time, you're going to get that back. That's going to come back the other way. So you do have to learn to be self-disciplined and to control that. And if you are moody all the time, you sit back and say, well, why is this happening? Do I need to go and talk to somebody about this? Is there some unconscious pressure that needs releasing? What is it? Um, so... We start with a very simple surface issue, and before you know it, you're, you're down into people's values and beliefs and their perception of the world. So that's a kind of a complicated answer, I suppose. To but it is it's it's a very interesting and it's a very important question you've asked me there. You know, Richard, I noticed a a life hack you do in your videos for projecting for projecting that hard target that's really simple, and that's that you have short hair. And it's it's kind of it's kind of funny. It's really simple, but people with short hair they just automatically seem a whole lot tougher. Often people assume I'm I'm uh, ex-military. Um, I've had that a few times from guys who are military. They'll they'll say, "Oh, you 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 know, I had a, a South African bodyguard who I was supposed to do some work with." Uh, a few months ago in Malaysia, he went, oh, but bro, I can tell you're, you're ex-British Army, aren't you? And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not military anything. So yeah, you can, you can get those overtones. I think there's a, that's part of taking responsibility for, for your appearance. Um, I, I have short hair at the moment because I had to do a seminar and the picture of me for the seminar had me with a grade zero haircut. So I wanted the guy that they were expecting in the poster to turn up. That's why I shaved my head. So tell me the story of how you got from Beddington to Malaysia. Uh, well, um, uh, in 2010, I was due to go to New Zealand to do work on a project uh, for, for shooting uh, some DVDs uh, with some English guys who had relocated to New Zealand. So I went... Traveling down from the UK to New Zealand, I, I stopped in Malaysia because one of my best friends from when I was a kid lives here. He's been in quite a few of the Street Fight Secrets YouTube videos. Um, a little brown fellow called Raju. He's my best mate from when we were like 14. Um, he's married a Malay girl, so he lives here. So I visited him on the way down to New Zealand. Went to New Zealand. Uh, that project didn't go at all well, and I ended up having to do door work um, in New Zealand again. Um, so worked on that and then when I came back to go to the UK I came back through Malaysia again and I just really fell in love with the place I just I, I really really like uh, Asia and I particularly like Kuala Lumpur it's not everybody's cup of tea which I can appreciate but um, I really really like the place I find it a very easy place to live so I, I went back to the UK went back to Bevington stayed there for maybe six months then moved down to London started doing door work in London again in 2011 um, and then in halfway through 2012 I just uh, said okay I'm gonna go back to Malaysia now and, and run the business from there I was interested in your story of how you were in a you were in a really serious altercation as a doorman a couple of years ago that was kind of a 
a real wake up moment for you, right? Right. Yes, yes, I was. Um, it, it's it's something that I've only recently started talking about because it was. Uh, uh, it's getting on for it's got to be getting on for like ten years ago when it happened. But yes, I um, I can't remember how much I said about this on the pickup podcast. I I my training and my lifestyle together created a and, and various other pressures in my life at that time came together to create a perfect storm uh, that that erupted one night into me um, quite badly hurting somebody. Um, in a way that I found very, very regrettable. And that had an extremely negative impact on my life for a good few years afterwards. I'm curious, if you could go back to this night that was kind of a, a tipping point in a negative direction for you, what do you think you would have, what, what, what would have, what would have you changed about that night? It's, it's a very tough question because, you know, you look at this stuff in retrospect and like, if it wasn't for that night, um, I would never have started teaching in schools. I mean, I, I, as a result of that night, I couldn't do door work anymore. I couldn't work in Liverpool anymore. Even though I managed to sort the problem out, uh, there was still a lot of people out there who had a problem with me. So I, I, I ended up being a taxi driver for a while, which I hated. Then I started my own chauffeuring company. And then from that, I ended up working in schools. And for three years, I taught uh, school kids, you know, kids 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, with, with serious, uh, sometimes with quite serious problems, gave them motivational seminars, gave them like help as much as I could. And that really, really uplifted me. And without that, there would be no Street Fight Secrets. I wouldn't, I mean, the, the, the confidence to do the public speaking and the confidence to help people came from that experience. Um, so would I change anything? I, I probably wouldn't. I don't know what kind of a... Per you know, it really made me look inside myself. It was a horrendous experience. Somebody else suffered a lot of pain, not for nothing. Um, you know, there was a reason why that incident occurred. He had assaulted a friend of mine and, and, and split his face open to the bone. But what I then did to him was not proportionate to that. Um, I don't really want to go into to too much details because it's it's it will seem gratuitous and, and, and make it make the situation petty when it really, really wasn't. It was a very serious situation. Um, you know, when I say there was a perfect storm, it's not all on me. It's not all my guilt. The perfect storm included the other guys in the scenario and all the ego and the testosterone and the gangster mentality and the gangster culture that we have going in Liverpool. So would I change anything? I, I just assumed that I, it happened because it was meant to happen. Um, my life got tougher because of it, and I, but I improved as a human being because of it, um, and it really did make me look inside myself, and I saw what I was capable of, and I saw what I wasn't capable of. And at that, at, it was an incident that very clearly let me know I wasn't capable of doing prison time. And so that's what made me get off that path. I can't, I do, I have no interest in committing any kind of crime that's going to get me involved in, in prison. Um, whereas up to that point, because I was a silly little boy, um, I thought that I could hack it. I thought I was tough, but that experience showed me I wasn't as tough as I thought I was. But I was tough in other ways. There were other things as a result of that that I realized I could do that other people couldn't do. I've done counseling for people who are terminally ill. Now, other people consider that tough, but I, I, it's something that, that I found I could do and actually was, was really, really good at. So as I say, without that very intense emotional experience, I wouldn't have discovered these, these things. There's a, there's this thing that I keep hearing 
lately. And I, I, I hear it from uh, self-help gurus. I hear it from pickup artists. I hear it from yoga instructors. And that is people talking about being present. And I'm honestly, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm hearing, this is a phrase I keep hearing on the different podcasts that, that I listen to. And I'm getting a little bit annoyed at this phrase because I hear it, but there's not a whole lot of explanation that goes along with it. And it's kind of like the new uh, be confident. It's like a piece of advice that's yeah. kind of like nebulous. Yeah, it, it, okay, so this thing of people saying be present, and it's become, it has become this nebulous, silly, insincere phrase from people who aren't living that. Um, and, you know, you mentioned yoga instructors. Uh, I, I make myself go to yoga classes. I find them very dull, but it's been amazing for the injuries I carry. And I very often hear yoga instructors spout stuff that isn't theirs. They haven't lived it. They don't, they, they're just saying it. So being present, um, I, I would rest this at the feet of Eckhart Tolle. But in his case, it comes from a place of sincerity. But being present means something to him that it doesn't mean when other people are just spouting it. Um, being present to him is creating a, you know, not to go all wispy and weird on you, but actually means creating an energy field around yourself in which you are surrounded by nowness. And his, when he says be present, what he means is don't disappear into your own thoughts about reality. Just have reality as it is um but yeah it has become this silly thing and the thing is that when people say be present what they need to be conscious of and aware of it's fine to be present if you're not in pain but for those of us who have suffered emotional trauma and psychological damage we don't want to be present because being present would mean being in pain that's why we do the silly things and have the addictions and drink too much and take drugs and have too much sex because we're trying to get out of the present moment into another moment that doesn't hurt. So when you just say, be present, be present, be present, without accounting for what the other person's experience is, you just make yourself sound like a bit of a clown, really. That's why you're getting annoyed. Richard, this is my thought on the whole be present philosophy, is that I think what it takes is it takes kind of gamifying situational awareness. So I think it takes con constantly playing little games in your head with your immediate environment, with your immediate physical environment for trying to make yourself as aware as possible and that you need to gamify this to make it entertaining enough that you're going to be paying real attention. So, for example, some things that I like to do is I'm one of these lucid dreaming people. I'm always kind of, I'm always kind of double checking my reality to see if I'm actually inside of a lucid dream. So some things about dreams, if you're in a dream, you're not going to be able to read really fine text. Anytime that there's some text that's a little bit smaller, go and try to make an effort, even if it's irrelevant text to you, make an effort to take a look at it and see if you can actually 
read it. Because if you're in a dream, then it's going to be kind of blurry. Also, if you're in a dream, it's a, it's next to impossible in a dream to, to change the ambient light level in that dream. So I have kind of a quirky little habit that if I'm walking in or out of a, of a room, I'll go and turn on and off the light switch really quick just to see if I'm in a dream. And if it doesn't turn off, then either, uh, either it's a broken light switch or I'm about to, you know, have a, a lightsaber duel with Darth Vader. Um, if, if I, if I want to, if I choose to I was just going to ask, so do you often have the experience where you're not sure if you're dreaming or not? That's, that's a regular occurrence for you. Yeah, what it's usually based upon is people's communication habits. Like I'll notice that people's communication habits will be off and the the kind of lucid dreamer I am, Richard, I'm actually kind of a I'm actually kind of a violent lucid dreamer. In real life, I'm like the nicest person ever. I've actually, I've actually never been in a, in a real fight, in an actual street fight, and I've certainly never initiated any kind of physical altercation. But in my dreams, I like to have, I like to have like kung fu battles with the other, uh, you know, with the other characters in my dreams. So what I'll do is I'll be in a, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be talking with someone, and if I notice that their, that their, that their communication is, is disingenuous or it's not really connecting with what's going on in the environment, then I'll do one of these other things to kind of check the dream environment. Like I will, uh, like I will, I'll, I'll go and turn off the light switch or I'll go and look at my watch or I will go and try to read some fine text. And then based upon those things, if I come to the conclusion that I'm in a dream, then if within that dream, I'll actually start a fight with this other person because that's what I enjoy doing in my dreams. It's just kind of a fun, a fun pastime. And obviously I'm, I'm very good at telling if I'm inside of a dream because I've never, I've never actually started a fight in real life with anyone outside of a uh, sparring match in a dojo. But that's kind of a, a way that I try to gamify my life experience so that I'm more aware of what's going on around me. And so what I'm curious about with you and your experience is as a bouncer, you're probably, you probably have a lot of little games that you play in your mind for uh, recognizing patterns in people of aggression or being like, okay, this person looks like they're going to be a problem at some point tonight. There, there, there are, but before I tell you that, I can't let this go. You're, you're a lucid dreamer, but you must also be a very, very vivid dreamer if your dreams are so vivid that f- they feel like reality and you, and, and you have to check. So are you saying you're a, you're a lucid dreamer and your dreams are exceptionally vivid, like real life? Correct, but I'm also on some smart drugs and some nootropics that that enable that. Like if you're ta- if you're taking DMAE, if you have some Cooperzine A in your system, your your dreams are gonna be your dreams are gonna be kind of crazy. So there is some uh, some some chemical uh, stimulation of that going on. I recommend trying it if you haven't. It's uh it's pretty fun. <laughs> I, I would. That's that, that's that, that sounds cool. If I knew, if I was lucidly dreaming, I was extremely vivid. 
then I would just fill the room with supermodels and start having sex with them. Um, that would be, I wouldn't have kung fu fights, mate. I would be, uh, <laughs> I'd take the dream in the other direction. You, you'd, you'd, have a, you'd have a date with Angelina Jolie or something like that. When she was still hot, yes. <laughs> when, she was, when she was 22, yes, I would. Um, the, uh, um, the, the, the Tomb Raider, Angelina Jolie. Jolie. Yes, yes, definitely. Def- with the English accent yeah, that she accent. does, which she does really well, it's fantastic. Um, yes. <laughs> but uh, awareness games, uh, yeah, I, I play games on the door to keep my mind going because it's boring. Um, and sometimes people are just obnoxious. Uh, one of the ones that I used to play to not be in the present moment. If I was in a smoking area or in a club, I hate smoke. So, and you can hear how stupid the stupid conversations people are having, which you can't hear when there's loud music. So, in the clubs in the UK, I'm sure it's the same in America now. When you want to smoke, you go outside. They have a special smoking outside area where the smoke can dissipate. So, you have to listen to moronic drunk conversations and have smoke blown in your face. So one of the games I used to play there is I would start, I would try and look up and see if I could see a star and then try and work out how far the star away is. And that always gives you some really cool lines of thought when you start thinking about the stars if you want to get out of the present moment. If you want to get back into the present moment, um, yeah, there are various things you can do. I mean, you just, your brain is a question answering machine. So I would say, okay, instead of thinking about what training you're doing tomorrow or work you're doing tomorrow, as you stand here and now, can you feel your toes on the floor? Yes, I can feel my toes on the floor. Can you breathe in and out? And you bring your attention back to your breathing. And it's all very classical Buddhism, Zen style training. Breathing in, I know that I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I know that I'm breathing out. So you bring your mind back to the present moment. Then you just look around the room and you say, well, if there was going to be trouble in here, oh, clever brain of mine, where would it come from? And then you scan and you go, oh, maybe over there. Okay, why? And then you start asking yourself the questions. And it just gently brings your mind back to being present to the moment um, because you know the brutal truth of it is even nightclub security even on very active doors is incredibly boring and and everything about the environment is trying to switch you off from present moment awareness the smoke the dry ice the music the strobe lighting uh, the, the the sheer amount of noise actually puts you into a trance so for doorman for nightclub security a big part of our game is to keep out of that trance and to stay switched on and stay externally focused another gamification method that i like to use is i try to gamify my own personal body language so especially if i'm in a social environment or if i'm at a party I will, I, I will almost do a little, I'll play this little penalty game with myself and my own body language. If I catch myself using some body language that's not confident body language. So if I catch myself, say, running my finger underneath the collar of my shirt, or if I catch myself touching behind my ear, if I catch, catch myself itching the back of my head, if I, if I catch myself crossing my my arms over my elbows if i catch myself putting my hands into my pockets with my thumbs because i've noticed that i've noticed that people that are more calm it's a little bit more confident body language if people put their hands in their pockets but they have their thumbs out of their pockets if i catch myself doing any of these things what i'll do is i'm going to be like okay now i have to do two 
positive body language things. So, like, for example, I'm sure you've watched that TV show Lie to Me quite a bit. I've seen a couple of the shows, yeah. In that TV show, they show how when people are a little bit angry at a situation, what they'll do is they'll raise They'll raise the skin just above their lip just a little bit into the scowl, and they'll do it for just like two, or or they'll do it for a microsecond. At the most, they'll do it for maybe like two seconds, but sometimes it's as much as like a quarter of a second that they just lift their lip a little bit. And I became very cognizant of myself doing this, and I've noticed that if something does annoy me, I will, a lot of times I'll do this, because these level of micro-expressions are really kind of unconscious. And so if I do that, then I'll make it a point to put a big smile on my face for like at least the next 30 seconds after that. Or if I've noticed that my legs are crossing each other or that my body's kind of closed up a little bit, what I'll do is I'll make it a point to go and open up my hands and put them on what's next to me so that I'm opening up, up my body. And I can really, as, as I play this little game with myself, and I'm, I'm really good about playing this body language game when I'm in social situations, I'm working on actually trying to get better at playing it with myself while I'm while I'm in front of my laptop working because that's kind of that's kind of like the ultimate place where our body language breaks down right is when we're in front of our laptop working on things but I, I'm, I'm trying to integrate it there so that I'm not letting my my physiology get into these these uh, inferior states while I'm working but that's something I try to do to keep the body language really confident and in turn keep the keep the mindset really solid um, as a result of gamification. And I think that I think that by gamifying our reality, people can that, that that's the real that, that that's a real way of of moving towards personal development. I think there's an idea that some people get about personal development that it's about relaxing more or that it's about being in a state where you're more tranquil. And my point of view is that it's about making your mind constantly active and constantly vigilant and in a uh, pattern-seeking mode. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. I think, like, for the social situation, for, like, the house party situation, if my brain started going inside at all and noticing where I was up to, I'd be thinking, I'm not enjoying myself here. I should be enjoying myself. I'm going to do something that makes me enjoy myself. I think external focus is, is quite useful because your body language will be an automatic manifestation of your state. So if you go into a better state, then the body language should be sorting itself out um, especially in social situations like that, because in order for you to go inside your head and be talking to yourself, that means you're not talking to... Are you doing this while you're talking to other people, or do you just do it in, in a gap where you're not talking to anyone? When I'm talking to other people, I try to really be into what they're saying and trying to be watching them real specifically. So, yeah, I'd say when I'm playing these little games 
that's mostly when I'm not talking to someone else. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think if you can, anything that you want to do, that there's a direction that you want to move in, um, rather than uh, moralizing, which obviously isn't what you're doing, which is a good thing, you're gamifying, which is a verb I've not heard before. Anything that's not moralizing, moralizing always uh, hurts and always stiffens the human response system up. So to make it a game, to make it something fun, sounds like a really good idea to me. I've got some other questions about martial arts for you. I recall an article I read a couple of years back about street fights, and in it, it said that one of the biggest factors in um, emerging successfully, or at least, you know, not, not, or one of the biggest factors of, of surviving a street fight was using the environment. Is that something that you'd agree with? Uh, it doesn't, it depends on what that means. It's a very vague statement. Using the environment um, could mean picking up a bottle and smashing somebody in the face with it. Using the environment could mean calling for help. Using the environment could mean hiding behind a wall. So I don't. Yeah, I, I think it was referring to the physical environment around you. And around you. Um, it certainly could help. I mean, you know, you do need to have an awareness of it. Uh, one of the things that I would say in the street fights that I've seen is is usually. Uh, it's usually two to tango. It's usually an ego backed thing. I've been involved in very violent incident, in very few violent incidents, and I've seen very few violent incidents where somebody couldn't have just walked away, where somebody couldn't have just swallowed their ego. So that's that's an important part of it. But yeah, physical physical use of the environment. Could, once once it's gone physical, uh, yeah, I guess you could use the environment to your advantage for sure. You certainly should be aware of it because if you're not, you might win the fight and then fall under a bus fighting on a busy road or something. So you do need to be aware of your spatial environment for sure. Another question for you. Me personally, I've had a couple of years away from martial arts training and I've been doing like some break dancing. I've been doing some jogging. I've been staying pretty active and I'm, I'm interested in getting back into martial arts. So when I was practicing martial arts when I was younger, karate and taekwondo, I remember that injuries were just kind of an inevitability of, of, of being involved with martial arts. And I'd like to get back into martial arts because I really enjoyed it, but I just don't want to deal with, I, I don't want to deal with injuries. I don't want to deal with, you know, having a weird crick in my back where my back doesn't feel right. I don't want to deal with having a shoulder that feels a little bit weird. I don't want to deal with having, you know, ankles that are sprained from time to time. Are you aware of some life hacks for minimizing the amount of injuries that someone sustains while they're practicing martial arts actively? Um, no, because we're trying to hurt each other fundamentally. Now, however that gets dressed up, or sanitized fundamentally you know it's about hurting other human beings it's it's fucking dangerous oh sorry swearing it's very dangerous um and and it's it's incredibly frustrating um especially as you get as you get older and it seems to be easier to get injured and i find myself going to classes where the instructor i, I don't know if it's a uh, the way culture's going or because of the economy 
when I was a kid, we feared the instructors. The instructor would beat the crap out of you if you put a foot out of line. Now, the instructor fears losing the student as a source of income. So instructors will watch students doing things that are incredibly dangerous and not stop them. The last time I went to a Muay Thai class, I had a guy who weighed 125 kilos spar with me, and one of the first things he did was stomp me in the knees. And he repeatedly stomped me in the knees. Uh, it's, very, it's incredibly dangerous. And the instructor came over, and I, said, I thought to myself, oh, the instructor will tell him to stop now. And the instructor said to me, listen, if he does that to you again, stomp him, stomp him in his knees. So I said, okay, it's your knee or mine. So I fucking kicked him back. And he stopped. But afterwards I thought, I'm too old for this That's shit. so irresponsible of the instructor. It's crazy. If you, I've had my posterior crucial ligament on my right leg. Uh, damaged in a, um, an altercation outside of a club in New Zealand, and I had the anterior crucial ligament on my left leg damaged when I was training to, because I used to want to do MMA fights, and I was going to do an amateur fight, and in training for that, I had that ripped. It put me on crutches for six months. Now, my girlfriend at that time, different girlfriend to the skincare one, was a physiotherapist. Thank God. Thank God she gave me physiotherapy every day and now I have very few knee problems. But without that, it would have screwed me up for life. Um, it, it's, it's, it's crazy. And unless you trust the instructor and you trust the school and you trust the students, uh, I'm not going to say it's not worth it. Everybody needs to make their own decisions. I personally can't be bothered with the risk of injury from people who are just training wildly. Uh, so so uh, I will only train with certain people. I need to know them. Uh, personally and I need to know the instructor isn't going to be some wimp who's just going to let people do whatever they want until somebody's toe gets broken or finger gets broken um, I, I, I mentioned toe being broken because the last the other bloody thing was at a BJJ club some guy was going too hard trying to put uh, knee locks on me and uh, he, I stuck my toe in between the two mats told him to stop and he had a rolling knee lock and um, the knee lock wasn't the problem It was uh, I said stop stop and my toe was stuck in between two mats and uh, nearly broke. It was like pur I had a purple toe for a couple of weeks. Um, and that, that, that gets irritating. That gets really, really irritating. So it is an issue. Is there a life hack? Um, you know, the more combative the sport is, the more combative the martial art is, the more likely you are to pick up these kinds of injuries. Uh, the only other solution is to train with somebody who is as brilliant and intelligent as an instructor as me. So you're saying that even though it might, uh, it might not help me a whole lot in a real street fight, I might be more interested in, say, uh, Tai Chi or Kung Fu Dude, listen, 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 Tai Chi, Tai Chi is a very, very underestimated martial arts style. I teach Tai Chi principles to doormen all the time and they love it. Tai Chi principles work great for door work. Tai Chi is extremely, you know, it's very good for you. It will cause you to be more present, to use that hackneyed phrase. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's fantastic fun. If you're already breakdancing, then, yeah, do some capoeira. I mean, if you enjoy it, do it. Look, as uh, coming from where you're coming from and your age and everything else taken into account, you're more likely to kill yourself than you are from being murdered by somebody else. You're more likely to die of heart disease or obesity than you are to die from being stabbed in a brawl. So, you know, priorities, your health and your personal training and your fitness and your strength training are much more important than uh, than these other things. 
in my opinion, if you're looking at the reality and the statistics of how you're likely to be damaged uh, in your life's path. Richard, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me this uh, evening for you, morning for me. On our website, LimitlessMindset.com, we have a marketplace of about 80 different products. Uh, some of them are nootropics. Some of them are actual mind hardware. And I wanted to find out about which one of your products you wanted me to list in that marketplace and see if you could give me some information about it of how it's, how it's relevant to the, uh, the people that are on my website, which are, which are people that are, are, are life hackers. They're interested in, you know, finding more clever ways of accomplishing bigger goals faster. They're fairly introspective personal development people, but I think that they're probably on the opposite end of the personal development spectrum of the, of the, the woo woo type people. Um, and they're also people that are really interested in, uh, in biology and in physiology and the, the connections between those. So I was wondering uh, what you'd like me to list in the mind power marketplace of the website. Probably the best thing for your people as a product that I've got called Social Magnetism. That's an ebook and a two hours audio tutorial. And it's all applied into personal psychology to increase your personal magnetism, to give you a bit more social gravity, to make it so that you're the type of person people would want to listen to, to give you a bit of strength and charisma and projection when you're communicating or doing public speaking, that kind of thing. So that's probably the best product for your people is the social magnetism one. Social magnetism. Okay, and I realize you sell that, but I'm wondering if just for the listeners, if you could share maybe uh, one or two nuggets of information that you had in that social magnetism product that that are fairly novel that you that you won't find elsewhere on the internet. Okay, I'll share something that is ridiculously simple, but as far as I'm aware, it's novel. I mean, I'm I'm a, a, a NLP master practitioner. I'm a psychology graduate. I've been interested in applied psychology since I was 13. But I've never really heard people talk about this. And it's one of the key principles of the Social Magnetism book. Is, um, you know, people don't really want to ask me the question, but I know that they want this answer. Is they want to be more popular. How do I be more popular is the question inside people's minds. How could I be a more liked person? How could I make it so that more people want to know me and I can expand my social circle? The key that, to, that is a good question. It's, it's a, I, I, I asked that question for about 15 years straight when I was younger. <laughs> and I'm going to answer it for you now. This is the synchronicity. This is, this is the whole purpose of the, of the communication. It's really simple. Um, you remember the Russian psychologist Pavlov with the dogs. Every time he rang a bell, he would feed them. He would ring a bell, feed them, ring a bell, and feed them. Eventually, all he had to do was ring a bell. The dog would think it was feeding time, and the dog would salivate. Um, even though there was no food present. And this was a good example of, of uh, this was the roots of behavioral psychology, as in making psychology something that was biological, observable, scientific, and testable. Human beings are exactly the same. You could create a neural pathway in people's brains so that when they see your face or hear the sound of your voice, they experience good feelings inside. If you do that, You've given them Pavlovian conditioning. You've just given them positive conditioning. If you can make it so that as soon as somebody says, hey, I saw Jonathan before, and they think, Jonathan, 
Ah, oh, Jonathan, what a what a great dude! And they smile and sigh and go, "What a nice guy." That's to your advantage. What a cheery fellow! I do so like him. Now, but it's really that's that's the key of popularity. Make people feel good in your presence. They will like you because people like to feel good.、Um, there's another psychology experiment, a not very ethical one,、uh, where they fixed electrodes into a monkey's brain that activated his pleasure centres, and he had the option to push a button and feel pleasure, and feel, push the button and feel ple- pleasure, push the button and feel pleasure. And obviously, being a mammal, what did he do? Well, he just sat there pushing the button all day. He didn't even want to eat. He didn't want to socialise. He just wanted to feel pleasure all the time. This is our mammalian nature. We like to feel good. We like people who make us feel good, who confirm our view of reality, who confirm our view of ourselves, and we avoid people who challenge that. Usually, so how do you condition somebody to feel good in your presence? Basically, your state transmits. So if I want you to like me and I want you to feel good in my presence and anchor good states to the sound of my voice and the sight of my face, I go into a good state first. I go into a good state, and then I say, "Hey, Jonathan, how are you?" And that good state is transmitted in my body language, in the way I'm talking to you, and everything else. And then when I'm talking to you, instead of whinging and complaining and whining about all the bad things that are happening in my life, I talk to you, I listen to you, I give you time and attention, I make you feel good, and I lead your mind in positive directions to the point where you're thinking about something that makes you feel good. It's an old uh, PUA uh, seduction technique where you talk to a girl and then you ask her to describe her dream holiday. Where would you love to go if you had like a limitless budget? Where would you stay? What would you do every day? And the girl is looking at your face, but projecting images of some beautiful tropical paradise all around you and anchoring all these good states while she's talking to you. There are loads of ways of doing this.、Uh, comedians do it. You sit there, you watch a comedian. He makes you laugh for an hour, and then at the end of it, you just have to hear his voice, and you start, you know, he's immediately like, "Oh, he's such a funny guy." You know, we're fairly simple organisms, so these things that can seem like huge social problems, when we break down the mechanics and the biology of how these things work, they actually become very, very simple. So, if you want to be more popular, just condition people to feel good. At the sight of your face and the sound of your voice, and the way you do that is by making them feel good when you're in their presence. You know, go into a good state, be happy, be upbeat, encourage people, listen to them, learn to be funny, learn to tell jokes. Being funny is hugely important. Help people out before they even ask for it. Be considerate, be polite, and guess what? Before you know it, you're popular. Simple as that. I really like that.、Uh... <laughs> That 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 old school PUA technique, and it's、uh, unlike a lot of old school PUA techniques. I think it's it's really relevant to dealing with a lot of kinds of life situations. Like I can imagine that question. It's so easy to adapt to other types of social interactions. Like if you're in a if you're in a, a networking situation and you're talking with someone else that operates their own business or who's an entrepreneur. Let's say let's say I'm talking with someone else who's A blogger, because you know bloggers. We seem to meet a lot of other bloggers. Is ask them a question like, you know, hey, what is the what is the ideal online business 
like when you visualize what your blog's going to be in five years and the kind of lifestyle that you're going to have because of this blog, what is that? What is that going to look like? So I think that's a that's a question that it can it can or you could let's say when you're talking to another martial artist, you can be like, okay, in in five years from now, what is your what is your ideal martial arts lifestyle? look like and then that person is going to that person's going to go into that that particular mode of fantasizing about their ideal reality but associating that back to you so yeah that's 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 super cool um thanks again richard dream for monday november 25th was that I was with a group of people that included my friend Flipper and my new friend Damien. And we needed to purify ourselves for some type of health purpose, which entailed jumping through the earth. And we jumped, we got on a tube and we fell through the core of the earth and we had great momentum as we fell through the core of the earth and there was a red light that I could see that told us our speed falling and we reached up to 4,600 feet per second we were falling and when we hit the center of the earth there was a there was a white blast around us and there's a feeling of magical euphoria when we fell through the center the earth and then then I woke up in a car I was with my friend Damien and my friend Flipper and I had a great feeling of euphoria but my two friends were somewhat sick and my friend Damien crashed the car and then my friend Flipper came out of the car and she was sick she had cigarettes in her mouth it was a really cool dream Legal notices. If you or someone you know developed or created a concept, piece of content, or idea shared on this show, please email us at info at limitlessmindset.com so we can mention them in the show notes or provide a backlink. We want to give credit where credit is due. As a listener to the Limitless Mindset Podcast, we hope you have and practice common sense. However, since some of the content covered in this show deals with subjects of a health, legal, or business nature, this show is for entertainment purposes. If you need recommendations of doctors, nutritionists, or attorneys to consult before making decisions that may have health or legal repercussions, please email us at info at
dot com dot com dot com dot com dot com dot com.